This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Lama Suryadas. Lama Suryadas is one of the best-known American-born lamas in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. He's the author of the books Awakening the Buddha Within and The Mind is Mightier Than the Sword. With Sounds True, he's created seven programs, including the audio learning programs Tibetan Dream Yoga and Buddha Is as Buddha Does as well as a book CD package called Natural Radiance, Awakening to Your Great Perfection. In this episode, Lama Suryadas and I spoke about recognizing our Buddha nature and waking up to the nature of mind. He also leads us in a Tibetan dream yoga practice. Here's my conversation with Lama Suryadas. Good to be speaking with Lama Suryadas. You know, LSD, that LSD, that's our nickname here for you at Sounds True. Not everybody gets to be called by their initials, but in your case, it just happened naturally. Okay, so I want to start LSD by talking about something that you call in your book, Natural Radiance, Mm -hmm. the pith instructions, that there are a series of teachings called pith instructions. Explain to us what that means, pith instructions. Well, it's not something I made up. The tradition of Tibetan Buddhism has these um, oral pith instructions or pithy, personal, condensed, essential instructions, kind of shortcuts, tips and pointers, oral instructions, often pithy, concise, that have been passed down by the masters to their um, students, disciples, and friends. And they're called pith instructions, mangak in Tibetan, upadesha, if you read Sanskrit. In, in the Trunk from Chase books, they're often called Upadesha, oral pith instructions. So they're often like the cream of the cream. They're the, the, the butter extracted from the milk. They're the essence of the essence in terms of the voluminous amounts of wisdom teachings taught by Buddha, not to mention the many sages you know, of uh, our world. It seems like pith instructions would be something that would be popular here in our time in the West. You know, people like it served up fast, quick, concentrated. That's why they've come much into vogue in modern times. They're part of what in Tibetan we call the Vajra shortcut. In other words, getting right to the point. Like when somebody holds your hand and points you along the way, leads you along the way, rather than you have to study it, get the maps, and explore it for yourself. So um, in this way, it's very personal, it's very intimate. What my own teacher, Neosho Kempo Rinpoche, used to call naked teachings. Can you share with us a couple of pith instructions that you use that are personally meaningful to you? Um, Well, there are many. Uh, One of my favorite ones is let go, let be. Many people think letting go means pushing things away, but it means letting things come and go, letting be, Mm -hmm. as it is. As it is is actually one of the shortest and great um, pith instructions. It implies leave it as it is, just as it is, the rightness of things as they are, acceptance and delight, appreciation for things as they are. 
Another one of my favorite ones, you might say, is that it is all within. This comes down, I think, from Padampa Sanjay, the Buddha of Tingri, who came from India, but uh, it is all within, and it points directly to the essence of what we seek and are. Whatever we call it, by whatever name, it's still a sweet. It is all within. Another one that I really like, and I'm, now I'm just translating from the Tibetan, so Chen Pith instruction is that we are all Buddhas by nature. We only have to awaken to that fact. Now tell, tell me what that means, we're all Buddhas by this nature. This introduces yeah. us to the divine or the light, the natural radiance of spirit within us all, that we all have an uncorruptible, primordially perfect and complete spiritual nature, that we are not Buddhists, God forbid, Tammy, but Buddhas by nature, not sectarian Asian Buddhas, but like gods and goddesses, that we each are a complete talking English child of God, that we each have the spark of divinity within us, that the light is within each of us and all of us. That's what I mean by natural radiance, the title of this book, Awakening to Your Own Innate Great Perfection. And therefore, the only task of awakening, really, or self-realization, is to realize this grandeur or kingdom that's within us kingdom, queendom, whatever we call it, by any name, it's still a sweet. And to recognize it in ourselves is to recognize it in all, and thus makes it possible to treat others as we ourselves would like to be treated. So this is the secret, not just of the view or the bigger picture, the outlook, but the meditation, the way we contemplate and see, reflect upon things and get used to them, and the conduct, the activity of treating others in a beautiful and loving way. View meditation and action is another pith instruction of our tradition. That meditation is not enough, that belief or philosophy is not enough, and action itself is not enough because it really depends on our intention and motivation and the clarity with which it's carried out. So we talk about view meditation and action together as an inseparable trinity of doing and being and actualizing in the world together for the betterment of all. Okay, so let's just slow down here for a moment, LSD. So, view, meditation, and action. What is the view? The view is to see things just as they are. The meditation is getting used to that, that view, that bigger picture, that allowing, the wisdom of allowing, to see through things, even as we see them, like to have a second sight, as it were, to open our third eye, as it were, to see things as they are, and depth perception and distinction, but also with the third eye of unity to see through them, to recognize their inseparable um, coherence or uh, fittingness in, in the hologram of being, in the totality of being. That's uh, the view. And from that comes the meditation of leaving it as it is, being able to accept things as they are, from which then we can choose more objectively how, if, and when to respond, which leads us to the action or the Buddha activity selfless, beneficial, compassionate activity in service of the highest good for the greatest number, not just reactive karmic activity, but proactive, liberating Buddha activity. That's the view, meditation, and action in a nutshell. Another pith instruction that I'd like to mention, Tammy, because it's one of my favorites and I use it all the time. In fact, I mentioned it this weekend in Vermont in a discussion about the uh, Dzogchen tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, is when the great master of Tibet, Padmasambhava, said, my view is as high, as vast, as inclusive as the whole sky, yet my actions regarding cause and effect 
in other words, regard to karma, my actions, are as meticulous as finely ground flour. So in this way, I think it helps us to recognize, again, the balance between doing and being, the yin and yang, the two poles of our life, alone and with others, doing and being, and how to have a big open mind and open heart, but also warm and connected, empathic, and fully engaged in a meaningful way with others and with the world. This idea, LSD, that we all are Buddhas already, but we have to uncover this. How do you know this is true? I mean, clearly it's something that tradition says, but what in your own experience has allowed you to know this? Or, I mean, do you, I mean, it's not, obviously it's not a belief. It's something you know in some way. Well, not anymore. (laughs) Um, It's not exactly accurate to say, Tammy, that we are all Buddhas, because some of us are sleeping Buddhas, some are awakened Buddhas, that's the difference. But we're all Buddhas by nature, that's more the way of looking at it. So it's a potential, but it's a very um, close to us potential. It's not far from us. We may feel far from it, but it's never far from us. So I myself, although I heard these great non-dual teachings, non-dual meaning not just getting from here to there on a long spiritual path, but getting from here to totally here, and being fully present to the nowness, nowness awareness, the true Buddha within, the authentic awakened state. Um, I heard that in the 70s in India from many teachers, but it wasn't until 1981 or two in my first three-year retreat under Kinsey Rinpoche that I was introduced to the nature of my mind or I awoke to recognize the true nature the Buddha nature within my myself, within my own heart-mind. And ever since then, I've had a s- more certainty about that. And that's something that my gurus um, directly pointed out to me or sort of provoked a sort of awakening. So introduction to the nature of mind or recognition of your true nature. Can you help us be with you here? Meaning you're on a three-year retreat. So first of all, I, I can imagine that that is... Uh, a stunning thought to many people, a three-year retreat. Um, <laughs> but, w- you know, w- where were you and what happened in this, quote-unquote, introduction to the nature of mind? Well, you're really pushing here. Um, usually, in our tradition, we don't talk about ourselves and our meditation and our experiences, but it is 30 years later now, and I've never really talked about this in public or written about this. And so, in, in that, that three-year retreat, we were visited for a few days for teachings by the uh, late Cab J. Kalu Rinpoche, a great master of the time who had many centers around the world and who was the yoga teacher of the Dalai Lama, actually. And uh, Kalu Rinpoche was my original root guru and refuge lama in the early 70s when I lived at his monastery in Darjeeling in the Himalayas. And he came in to visit and he gave us a certain empowerment, the Karmapakshi, Karmapa, Guru Yoga empowerment. And when he put the crystal in front of my eyes, I realized totally that his mind and my mind and Buddha mind and Karmapa were one since the beginning. And um, the whole universe was arising and dissolving within that, and at the same time, nothing happens. And it was such a state of complete, uh, inexpressible arriving, wholeness, bliss, love, clarity, I don't know, totality, transparency, translucent, transrealescence is the only word I could use here. (laughs) 
and uh, after that, everything I read about Buddhism or studying in our Tibetan texts and, and sutras and scriptures and tantra commentaries all made a hell of a lot more sense. Like where it says things in the scriptures, in Tibetan scriptures, like, I'm just remembering now that my own teacher used to say, my own mind is Buddha, but I never realized this. And even thoughts are, the true, are just reflections of reality, like waves in the sea of reality, but I don't realize it. And the great way is naturalness itself. Ordinary mind is the way, as Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche used to say it. So I gained a great conviction about this, and this is what I try to teach and transmit to my own students and friends today. And um, this, it's a sort of esoteric or, or a secret, abstruse teaching from outside, but from inside it's the most obvious thing in the world. You can't miss it. It's so clear that it's self-evident that everything is it, and you can live your life with joy and appreciation. In fact, Tammy, since you asked me about the piss instructions, it occurs to say the shortest piss instruction, what we call the shortest Dzogchen teaching, is imaho, which is one word, which means wondrous delight or amazement or wonderment. So just imaho is already a piss instruction to like wake up to the nowness and, and, and revel in it, delight in it as it is right now. And this was not a teaching I could really experience when I was too young to appreciate. I had to go through many practices, all the foundational practices and mantras and prostrations and yogas and meditations and monastic trainings and other things in the 1970s till I could wake up to that. Some people um, woke up quicker, some people slower, but the, the fact is that we're all Buddhas by nature and what's the rush? Imaho. So this crystal was held up to your forehead what do you think happened in Well, Colin Che put it in front of my eyes, and he shouted, What is this? And it sparked a... Of course, he shouted in Tibetan, Semkayin! <laughs> I don't know. I think it's like a jewel cutter. When he, he taps on the vital floor, the jewel opens in its perfection. It doesn't just break open or smash the smithereens like if you or I were doing it. The masters have that skillful means, Upaya, to be able to help us awaken, but it's a combination of the ripening of karma, of the blessings, the um, inspiration, the grace waves, what should we call it, the energy of the, the lineage of the invisible ray reaching all the way back to the Buddha and even beyond to the primordial Buddha and all the Buddhas, that energy coming, quote, as if from above or outside combined with the ripening of the suitable vessel or the, the disciple, the student coming, if you like, as if from within. And when those two meet, there's a cosmic epiphany called satori or breakthrough or awakening or realization or recognition, introduction of the true nature of Buddha mind within oneself and within all beings. And this is not just Buddhist uh, talk. Um, I, in my desultory reading of the mystic traditions of the world, I've noticed that the founder of the Quakers, George Fox, called it the inner light and he said that we all have it and for that he was persecuted and the Quakers had to leave England um, in, in Buddhism we say that all beings are endowed with this clear light of Buddha nature all beings, not just human beings so although some of my Christian friends tell me that animals don't have souls that's not the way Buddhists look at it so this inner light or inner Buddhiness, this inner radiance natural radiance suffuses and endows all of us 
with all that we need and more than we could dream of if we would only plummet and, and exploit it even. We, we, we could exploit our own natural resources for change, stop stripping, strip mining the world and the environment, start exploiting our own natural resources for the change for the betterment of all. Now, in your own life, would you say that there was sort of, you know, before this awakening to the nature of mind and after, and that it was a, a marker that your life was radically different in some way before and after, or not? Um, yes and no. You know, the French saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. It's like that. Um, before I was uh, different, now I'm the same. <laughs> That was the change. If that's too, if that's too um, vague or too much of like uh, fast and footwork, I'll say yes. I went from knowing or thinking, believing, hearing that there was a there there, to being there and knowing there was a there there and being there. Okay, and how did that change? You know how you acted, how you you know everything. Well, it took a while to sink in. Um, as others have said, uh, at first I just, you know, wanted to stay in it all the time and more and more. Like, um, I think one of my masters in the lineage said, like a, like a thirsty man uh, in the desert coming upon an oasis, just drink and drink. But um, it was like the sun had dawned, and it was not where I thought it was. And uh, it was a complete shift in perspective, figure ground shift. Not like I was looking up at the stars, but more like I was the sky that all the stars were in. But then, gradually, the obscurations and habits and conditioning returned, and I was sort of back more in my own self-centered, personal perspective, you know, thinking about how I feel and my own personal preoccupations of the day. Even in a three-year retreat, you're still a, a human being. You know, in a monastic setting, you're still... With, still a human being that, you know, likes this better than that and wants this and doesn't want that, all the pushing and pulling that we do. It's so exhausting in life based on delusion and separateness and ways that we avoid being totally present and now. Um, so it changed me and it didn't change me, but I had a different perspective and I wore that neurosis more lightly. In fact, it may be my sole contribution to a Buddhist scholarship to have coined a new term for this sort of uh, neurosis as adornments of wisdom. I call it the neuroticaya. It's one of the bodies <laughs> neuroticaya. The five calatias or obscuring emotions arising as the five jewel-like luminous lights of wisdom. The neuroticaya. So long live the neuroticaya. It's a very original contribution, Ellis. Thank you. No, I'm proud of it. And pride is another sin of the neuroticaya. Long live the neuroticaya. <laughs> but there's a deity you know in Tibetan Buddhism we talk about the dignity or, or divine pride of the deity and that it's that like you, if you can laugh at your own foibles that's the, the divine pride that's not ego pride no I love it and then you also have a lot more patience and empathy with others you were asking about how it changes one's life that's yeah. how you see everyone is like that different different um, different players on the divine team with their all their different styles and uh, approaches. Not that you like them all equally, but like and dislike is so much smaller than the great love that one feels in that state of union or oneness or transrealescence, as I called it, interwovenness.
the great perfection. The ultimate consummation, really, is a good translation of Dzogchen. It just means everything just um, ripe, as ripe as it can be. Beyond change, actually. This is why Buddha called it deathless nirvana. Buddhists usually repeat unthinkingly too often, like a catechism, everything is impermanent. But that's not what Buddha said. Buddha said everything that's put together, all compounded things are impermanent. He talked about space as an example of something that's not permanent, and he specifically talked about nirvana as not impermanent, deathless nirvana, endless nirvana. So we can live in that inexhaustible state or space that's not a state. It's really the united state of mind, let's say. And it's inexhaustible. I remember one somebody went, a, a chai at a at an interview with my guru, the late Dingo Kinsey Rinpoche, a child once asked him, the old master, get this picture, Tammy. There's the old master who is very large, maybe six foot two or three, which is huge for an Asian. And this little uh, European child at a little audience blessing the children asked him, Lama, what's the difference between money and enlightenment? <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, you know, what kind of frivolous answer I would give if I was asked that what's the difference between money and enlightenment master and, and the master without blinking an eye he said money can run out enlightenment never ends <laughs> I thought that was so great so not quite everything is impermanent and unreliable that's my point and we can, we can find something to rely on that's the meaning of the innermost refuge really to arrive at that kind of realization or conviction that never runs out, that never lets us down, that does not change. That's the ground of the path. That's also the goal. That's where we're coming from. That's where we're heading to. That's where we are, if we can stand it, to stand in that. That's the ultimate stance, Mahamudra, the supreme outlook. Using a word like the deathless, that's a, that's a very powerful word, LSD. And... Do you have a sense that you, you know, when you die, that some part of you doesn't die? That, you know, what, what is deathless in you? When you die to yourself, then you don't think that some part of me doesn't die. You realize total ruination. So, as the Christian mystics call it, total ruination. But it's like Buddhists would call it uh, anatta or no self, selflessness, that we're part of the whole. So we continue, but it's not, you know, just like me continuing. It's that underlying continuity, to use a weak translation of a, the name of a Tibetan a text. The underlying continuity. Continu the Tao continues. The, the waves come and go, but the water, the river continues. It's not just, it's not, that's why in Buddhism we don't talk in the positive exactly. Maybe we don't talk in the positive enough, so it's a little hard for, to understand for Western minds today. But we prefer to talk about it like uh, selfless or deathless not immortal, not eternal. But it doesn't mean that there's not this un ongoing uh, clear light or luminosity, this luminous spirit. But it's not personal, nor is it impersonal. It's not personal, it's transpersonal. It's inclusive. Unborn and undying, true nature, or Dharmakaya, that's what we call it. That's Buddhist scripture, and that's what I experience or feel. That's what I think. I've never heard that phrase before, total ruination. What, what is that from? It's from the Christian mystics. 
And they're referring to? Ego death. Dying into God. Before, even dying before you die. As the Sufis say, die before you die and you shall never die. They're talking about ego death. First the bubble of self in the ocean of being, in the great ocean, and then um, even if that, when that bubble reassembles, as I was talking about after my own awakening experience, you have a whole different view of the ocean, and you know you don't have to slay your ego, you don't have to burst the bubble to be part of the sea that you've you're always been in. You can see through yourself while still being an individuated, healthy adult self. So you have a healthy ego, not an egotistical, self-centered, narcissistic ego. Egotism running rampant. That brings me to a piss instruction I think is very important, um, which is one of the those we've talked about in natural radiance, which is not too tight, not too loose. So we shouldn't veer between the extremes, Tammy, of all or nothing. You know, like in relationships, which I know you're an expert at, Never to say never or always. Oops, look, I just said it. You know how damaging it can be and, and how really inaccurate and useless, uh, unuseful, let's say, it can be to always, you know, to, to, to say too much never and always, which are rarely true. So in Buddhism, the Buddha taught the middle way, not too tight, not too loose. And that's a great Vajra or uh, trustworthy adamantine, his instruction. Not to be too ascetic, perfectionist, and not to be too indulgent or sloppy, floppy. But balance in the middle way. Moderation, but also moderation in moderation. Not too tight, not too loose. In Natural Radiance, in addition to offering quite a few pith instructions, you also emphasize, and the reason that we included an audio track, a CD with the book, is that you, you talk a lot about the importance of the oral tradition and the oral transmission of these ideas and of waking up. Can you talk about that? Why is the oral tradition so important? Well, um, for various reasons. One is it's like parenting. We all need a mother, a, a womb mother to give birth to us, but we could grow up without parents, without even a mother, but we need to give a mother to give birth to us. Similarly, we need parents to uh, help us grow up and of course single parenting is also possible but you know most people grow up better if they have two parents and a lot of that is from the personal care and uh, sort of the pith instructions of the parents like this is how you do this this is how you do the potty this is how you tie your shoe it's hard to learn that from a book and in, or in school it's too intimate it's too personal and it's also a shortcut rather than studying all about it about the dynamics of elimination and digestion or plumbing, for that matter, or, or the dynamics, the, the science of um, shoelaces and leather and shoemaking and all that, and, and uh, sailor knots. No, you just your, your, your parent or your elder sibling kneels down and shows you and tells you, and you learn to tie your shoe that way. And we all did. And that's the beauty of the pithy instructions. These oral instructions passed on by the wise masters is kind of like a grandmother's recipe for chicken soup it's hard to, it's the secret recipe for enlightenment that people have tried and true found useful themselves in their place and circumstance not just one of the many 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 recipes or trial and error methods not just one of the 84,000 dharmas taught by the enlightened master of the buddha 
but actually something fitting for the time and circumstance combined with the care of the elder that's passing it on, hopefully intended, selflessly intended directly for the situation of the younger who's receiving it. So it's very pointed. It's very sharp. It's very much to the point, on the point, and can really make a difference. So in that way, maybe we're not all scholars, maybe we're not all philosophers, maybe we're not all people who study religion for many years. We can just learn a technique or two and go very far with it without learning all about the whole religion and cosmology and history of the thing. And I think that's very pertinent and important for us today, just as it always has been throughout history, for some people to get right, cut right to the quick, to the marrow, to the essence. And that's why we have the pith instructions. I found that to be true for myself. Sometimes they're um, not even verbal, Tammy. In, in our tradition, we talk about the different ways of pointing out this dharmakaya or this innate buddhiness. And the pith instructions are usually thought of as oral or with words. In other words, not just reading it in books, not just philosophically convincing somebody to believe in it, but to give them the actual experience, kind of a little bit of a, a spiritual energy shock therapy. But they could also be pointing out with gestures, with mudras. There are many stories of how a gesture has awakened somebody. Or it could be with uh, a movement like um, pounding the table to startle someone into a wakefulness. Or it could be, as in the case of the ancient master Tilopa in India, the crazy wisdom sage yogi Tilopa, who kicked his disciple, the learned spick and span abbot and pundit philosopher Naropa, in the face with his filthy sandal and awoke him to the greatest Mahamudra realization in history, the waves of which are still rolling down to us through the Kagyu Mahamudra lineage today. So to, in today's litigious society, uh, masters can't really go around kicking and beating their disciples, <laughs> but um, there are many ways to shock us out of our complacency and habitual ways of seeing and being out of our habitual conditioning and thinking. So that we have experience a completely new way of seeing and being, not just a little bit of incremental change, but an exponential leap, like a hyper jump to a different state, an elevated state of consciousness. So there are different kinds of pith instructions or ways of pointing out, and um, I've mentioned some of them, oral, gestures, actions, and sometimes even just mind to mind, where the powerful, let's say, intention or Buddha mind of the master, the accumulated energy of that master's lifetime of practice or lifetimes of practice and the whole lineage is brought to bear upon a particular disciple's heart-mind, mind-to-mind transmission through, through um, a gaze or, or, or vision or in dreams even. It can happen. And these things do happen even today. So really when you talk about the oral tradition, it's not so much the sound of the voice, it's, it's more this personal, the right context, the right moment, the, it's, it's all based on that direct interaction. Yes, that's why it's called direct introduction. You said it, direct access, direct introduction to the nature of mind. They always say direct. And it's unmistakable. The example is given is like if you met your father in a crowded marketplace or today, let's say, stadium, it wouldn't be hard for you to, re to recognize him. I mean, you would instantly recognize him, even if there were 100,000 people in that stadium, if he was right, in if he was directly in front of you. So 
So although the truth of who and what we are is always directly in front of us, sometimes it's lost in that crowded stadium of our non-talks, our discursive thinking and welter of sensory perceptions. So direct introduction puts us face-to-face with this reality in an unmistakable manner so that it's self-authenticating. Tammy, you yourself would know, and who could dissuade you that you saw your father, that you met your father? Not like, oh, I think I glimpsed him across the stadium in the right field bleacher. No, it was like, yes, I saw my father. He was right in front of me. We shook hands. It was my father. Who can dissuade you? No one. That's direct introduction to the true nature, to the natural state, to our, our Buddhiness. That's why the fifth instruction is, is said, natural mind is Buddha mind. When you become really you, Buddha is Buddha. Then there's nothing to do and nowhere to go. Done is what had to be done, as Buddha has said. And this is a kind of specialty we say, you know, I don't like to claim uniqueness. In, in the religious world, everybody has their own one way or best way. So, of course, I have mine too. I think that the Dzogchen path of Vajrayana Buddhism is the best way. But I admit, it, that means the best way for me. It, even it's the only way. It's the way for me. But we... You know, we talk about it, and the tradition is talked about as being very special, pith instructions pertaining to the Dzogchen lineage, that each lineage has its own specialties. Some of them excel in yoga, in philosophy, in meditation, in debate, in ritual, in other things, in monastic discipline, in service to the poor, you know, in education. The Dzogchen tradition, the Nyingmapas excel in this pith instruction lineage. That's what my own teacher, Kinsi Rinpoche, used to say. And this is like a special legacy or a tradition. Of course, you know, it exists elsewhere, and I even quoted it from the Kagyu Mahmudra tradition with Talopa and Naropa, but we rely heavily on this piston instructions and, and go right to the point. My old, uh, late, great teacher, Tukurigen Rinpoche, used to directly introduce people to the nature of the mind, even without asking them if they had taken refuge, if they were Buddhists, if they had done preliminary practices. He used to say, bring me the scientists. They don't believe in anything. They can get right to the point. He liked people of acute faculties who could get right to the point. And he introduced people to the nature of mind in surprising ways, such as pounding on the table or asking them a question. What shape is your mind? Sometimes that would provoke an incredible, startling realization. You created an interesting program with Sounds True LSD that's on Tibetan dream yoga. Mm-hmm. And and I'm wondering, particularly in the context of our discussion, which is how people can wake up to the nature of mind, how Tibetan dream yoga fits in, and if you could just give us a couple insights, things that people might actually be able to try. Um, I, I like that very much, and I've heard it's popular. I know my students love that tape. Let's do it again and again. Because it really helps us to understand what we call in Tibet, I think famously from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the bardo, the in-between, the transition, the transitory nature of life. In fact, all of life is a bardo, a transition, if we really look at closely. But um, it's usually thought of as the transition between death and rebirth. But what it really means is the gap or the tra- between this moment and the next moment. So it really helps us enter more into the nowness awareness that is the intrinsic Buddhiness within us. Buddha reality or the holy now and then we do have all the time in the world it's the cure for time stress and time famine time fatigue and it, it helps us to train to be aware as we're going to sleep 
for example, to meditate on the clear light behind our eyes and on our forehead as we're going to sleep and be awake to the stages of hypnagogic imagery arising and falling into the sleep state and the dreams and be awake while dreaming in our sleep. Be awake in the dream and know it's a dream while we're still asleep. And then be master rather than victim of the circumstances and conditions and happenings in the dream. And this way, by playing with the dream reality, which is much more plastic, as it were, as we're unencumbered by our physical form in the dream, it's all made up of consciousness or mind, if you like. By playing with the dream, by being master in the dream and changing the circumstances in any way we want, we learn to be more master rather than victim of conditions and circumstances, be more masterful more of an agent rather than acted upon in our daily life, which is also a bardo or dreamlike reality. This is called Tibetan Dream Yoga. It's one of the six yogas of Naropa, or six Vajrayana yogas coming from the ancient uh, masters of India and Tibet. It sounds pretty similar to lucid dreaming. I mean, is it? Yes, lucid dreaming is psycho- modern psychology's discovery or definition of that, um, without some of the details, of course, because Tibetan Buddhism has been practicing and refining these techniques for 1,500 years, so there's a lot of tools and techniques, um, but lucid dreaming is a way to do that, and uh, Stephen LeBurge has developed that, and there's even some blinking light machines and some other instructional tapes you can buy to help you do that. In Tibet, they used to use a dream helper. Somebody would sit by your bedside and do that, just like when you die, a lama would sit by your bedside and chant to you or give you direct piss instructions from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, believing that the consciousness can hear even though the body has breathed its last, so you can be guided through the bardo after death and into the light rather than into the darkness of unconscious or unintentional, uh, less desirable rebirths. In fact, an amusing story that I observed was, uh, you know, we often hear about these things, but we're not usually there and it's usually some history or it's, it happened far away. But I was there when one of my, soon after, unfortunately, one of my monk friends died after our three-year retreats. And uh, the son of our uh, great elder teacher was also uh, Rinpoche, a master himself. And um, he was sitting next to my friend's uh, laid-out body in the, his hermitage room rather than reading the book as, you know, like a formality, like the way they do often when they call a lama just to read the book over the dead person for 49 days, you know, sometime every day or something. He was shouting at my friend, Martin, wake up! You're dead now! Go into the light, not the darkness! See through yourself and realize Buddha! And it was, it was like he was shouting in case Martin, the dead Martin couldn't hear. It was really funny <laughs> at the same time. But it was more funny. I'm sure Martin would have appreciated the humor of it all. He was a deer. Now, LSD, if I want to try Tibetan dream yoga, you mentioned, you know, going into the place of light behind my eyes before I go to bed. But can you be a little more specific? How can I actually try this? What instructions could you give me? Well, it's a kind of a guided meditation uh, where you, even if you close your eyes now and if you're listening to this um, program, maybe if you're driving, you might not want to do this, but if you close your eyes and look carefully, you know, breathe and relax and center, 
and be present and mindful and attentive and bring all of your attention to your eyelids look in, into and out through the back of your eyelids keep your eyes closed look into and out of your eyelids and I think you won't find it's very dark it's rather shimmering isn't it it's like a black light as we used to call it in the 60s it's a very shimmering iridescent featureless field it's a reflection of the clear light of mind we say and as you gaze into that you sort of sky gaze into that as if you're looking into the sky breathe out through your eyelids breathe out into that infinite undifferentiated luminous expanse and sharpening and clarifying your vision your attention your present moment awareness right now and in that way you start to see through the seer and be free are you looking out are you looking in how can you say just keep your eyes closed just keep gazing into that inner iridescence the inner clear light which is like a reflection of the innermost nature of the heart-mind or Buddha awareness. Look at the light. Concentrate on the light like it's a full moon. Look into the shining face of that full moon, that iridescence, that incandescent presence. Look at the light. Become the light. Lighten up. Transparentizing. Be light. Let me repeat, because these are the instructions. Look at the light. Become the light. Go into the light. Merge with the light. Be light. Five steps to lightening up and enlightenment. This is a meditation one can do any time, of course. If you do that while you're falling asleep, it could help you see through the dream images called hypnagogic images that arise behind your eyelids and maintain consciousness gradually, eventually maintain consciousness through the different stages of sleep as you enter into the sleep state and then go deeper into state one and two and three and four, you know, the reticular eye movement, REM sta states and all, and all the way down to dreamless sleep where it's really hard to be aware and uh, in sleep you bob up and down between those four states. And then recognize everything as dreamlike and unreal and not yours let go of ownership and surrender into the light and be the light and in that one can play with forms and situations like a magician making things happen and that could be very freeing and carry over into our daydream as it were which is also like a bardo the bardo of uh, from morning until night or the bardo of from birth until death because everything is a transition Tammy, and we live on the cusp of time and eternity in transition. It's really all transition and flow. There are no um, brackets, no bookends, no barriers. Birth and death are like bookends, but they're very uh, semi-permeable membranes. There's no real solidity there. It's just one moment after another. And that is the nature of our life. That's why they say that time is like a river. and just keeps flowing, and that is the great Tao. We are time, actually. There is no time. We are it. The great flow flows right through us. We don't have to get into it. The great flow goes through us every moment. And that's the secret of these Bardo teachings, how we can be fully awake to the nowness in dream or now. Because it's all 
a passage, a transition, a gap. A gap between what and what? God knows. Ask her. When we see through the seer, we are truly seen and free. So let, let me say a few more things about this. I don't know if it will be useful, but you don't usually hear this. So in this kind of meditation, we're looking at the light. We're really looking into the, we're sort of looking at the sheen of our mind. Mind is sheer lucency. We're looking at the sheen, the, the clarity of our own mind. It's hard, you know, they say the eye can't see itself, but I say with the mirror, the eye can. So in this way, the, the eye is seeing itself. A sword is sort of cutting itself and cutting through and cutting deeper. Well, first of all, thank you, LSD. That's helpful about Tibetan dream yoga. And, you know, we've made a, a couple of jokes that are between us that our audience may not be following that have to do with you're saying, oh, Tammy, she's so interested in relationships and love, falling in love again. And, you know, we had a previous conversation where you and I were catching up with each other. We haven't talked in a while. And I was asking you about your love life because, you know, it's a topic that I'm terribly interested in people's love lives, my own, others, you know. And I'm curious, here we've been talking about this great, vast expanse of light, and then there's just the whole realm of human relationships and how difficult they can be in so many different ways. And I'm curious, over the last couple of decades, about this part of your life and what you've learned and how this great realization can come into relationships and what you've learned about that? Well, I don't know if I have great realization, but I have tried to mingle my life with the Dharma, and I think that's what we can do as Bodhisattva practitioners on the path. And, of course, that includes relationships. Um, although I lived like a monk most of my 20s and 30s, I did have one great um, love story that went on and off for a long time who I met in India in, uh, in, when I was, uh, I don't know, 22 or 23, and then I was a monk for seven or eight years in the three-year retreats, and she was a nun in Korea for six years, and we were, you know, we only saw each other very, very once in a while after that, but let's see, I guess I got married in, when I was 50, which was, oh, eight years ago, so relationship is a part of life. Um, obviously, and um, the most important part of life is how we encounter every moment. That is the real relationship. I think Martin Buber talks about this in I Thou, how to have I Thou relations with everything. And that is something that Buddhism is very, very deep into, although it's not made explicit. Maybe Western Dharmaists could explain this a little more in the modern times to apply deep Dharma to our time and place how uh, making every moment meaningful is the true relationship as Buddhism teaches how to encounter every mind moment. So relationship doesn't just mean with other people, it means with every thought, with every perception, with every feeling, how we relate to it, object relations, and so on. But um, back to the general relationship story, which I think is what you're asking about. I think if Buddha was alive today, and he is, he would add an extra inning or two to his famous Eightfold Path, the, which might be called right relationship or wise relationship, because most people today are lay people, not monastics, not celibate, not solitary hermits. And relationship, like work, love, and sex, is such an important part of our life. And it's a beautiful part, and it shouldn't and can't be denied. 
of course, it, Buddha did consider work and vocation an important part of the spiritual path. It's step five on the eight steps to enlightenment, the Noble Eightfold Path. Right livelihood, a wise vocation, making a life, not just a living. Very, very important. And I think right or wise relationship would also be um, an extra inning on the Eightfold Path, maybe the ninth inning, and maybe the tenth inning would be um, good humor. Mm-hmm. And I think relational mindfulness is very important to, to bring to bear our spirit, the best that we have in us, to relationships and not just look at it as some kind of distraction or diversion from the real spiritual work. So I've learned a lot from my gurus, my masters, my teachers, mentors, and elder spiritual friends. And also I've learned a great deal from the beautiful women in my life. And a real relationship, like a real guru-disciple relationship, Tammy, a real relationship is like a mirror that reveals your best and worst parts. It's, it's, a, it's like a makeup mirror with the bright stage lights around, like a stage mirror that shows you all the little, um, your pores and your acne scars more than the usual lighting. So in that way, you know, as we know, relationships are just about the greatest um, facilitator or catalyst for the big ups and downs in our lives. And uh, I think that that's really enriched me and humbled me and uh, made me more of a mensch than I w- would have been without them. And by the way, I do want to say I think it's very important to um, balance divine love. We're trying to develop unconditional love and compassion and loving all beings equally and all of those great high ideals with the very meticulous, finely ground approach to karma of loving people one by one, you know, not just trying to love everybody, but finding a way to love somebody, and uh, particularly finding a way to love oneself. Don't leave oneself out of the equation. Self-acceptance is a huge part of true relationship and loving. And when we can love ourselves, we can truly generously love others. And uh, when we love and accept others, the whole world loves and accepts us. And love doesn't come from outside, Tammy. Love comes from loving. That's very important. It's a, it's, it's, it's a way. Loving is a way. Relationship is a verb. I wanted to take the conversation into that kind of grounded place because we were talking so much about sort of the vast sky of being, and I felt that I was traveling there with you during this conversation. And I wanted to make sure that we you know, hit the ground and hit the the specificity of our lives and the, the difficult part of our lives. And, mm-hmm. you know, recently you recorded a program with Sounds True, Buddha Is As Buddha Does, on the bodhisattva ideal. And I'm curious, in the process of writing that book and then teaching an audio program on it and being immersed in this whole discussion of the bodhisattva, how you worked with just all of the ways, and each of us has to work with, that we fall short of the bodhisattva ideal? Well, that's a good question. Um, I spent two or three years teaching about the bodhisattva way and the ten transformative virtues, the ten panacean practices of the bodhisattva, the paramitas, and um, researching and telling stories about it and asking some of my lama and scholar friends about some of the esoteric aspects of the outer behavioral and the inner attitudinal and then the secret kind of 
wisdom or suchness, the, the, the innermost mystical level of those virtues and practices. And it, many times it's kind of daunting to realize the, the vastness and the, the grandeur and the depth and profundity of these Panacean virtues and these teachings and and the greatness of my own spiritual teachers who, who actually seem to live and embody those virtues and to um, exemplify them even. And um, it's inspiring. It also makes one recognize one's own shortcomings and failings. But um, part of the Bodhisattva vow is to rejoice in just being able to um, make the attempt, fight the good fight, do the good work, try to make a difference in this world and the next. And there's a lot of joy in that, which is the um, fourth paramita or transformative virtue, joyous enthusiasm and effort. So it, it all kind of uh, reinforces itself. Uh, you know, the dark and the light come together. Wherever the light is brightest, the shadows are darkest, as they say. And uh, I had to face my, in myself, not just wanting, you know, not falling into the trap of just telling all the enlightenment stories and ignoring the struggles on the path and how hard it is to give generously when you just feel like you can't give anymore. And I'm not even funny. How hard it is to just you know keep being patient with the teenagers when they're so demanding and ungrateful and hormone-ridden. How how hard it is to be tolerant and accepting of those who have such different believes in us and seems so dogmatic and set in their ways and even dangerous in, in, in this world and how, how to be wise when clarity is in such, such short supply and emotions overwhelm us and tarnish our view how to be wise and clear and calm and centered and make wise and skillful beneficial decisions for the long run as well as the short term gratification so it really made me face my own uh, defects and um, limitations as I was saying, like looking in a, in a stage mirror with the, with the light bulbs around it shows up your skin that much clearer, and you see the defects more than anything that you never noticed before under that glaring light. And so, in that way, it was a great practice, and it was also a challenge. And um, I think it, it, it was a catalyst to work harder on having really a good heart and cultivating unselfishness and generosity and all those virtues and not just dream about these highfalutin ideals like oneness and trans-realescence and remember that once upon a time my master and I were one. And meanwhile, I'm you know somehow feeling jealous of the next author's success or something like that, you know, these moments that we all have in our careers, or for that matter, our relationships. So I think that these are great practices to be engaged in if you have the right motivation and keep your wits about you, you keep your intention together to be a bodhisattva, to be progressing on the path, and for the betterment of all, not just selfishly. Mm -hmm. Well, good Lama, LSD, the Dalai Lama, I'm hoping that we can end our conversation with you leading us in some kind of blessing. I'd love to hear you chant. Thank you. I love to chant. Yes, and bless you, and bless yourself and everyone, and I hope everyone will join in, in in wishing blessings and benedictions to the world. Don't be stingy. Give out your blessings and benedictions from your good heart. That's right there within your chest. Don't overlook it. 
Jancho Sabcho Krempoche Makye Panam Kyuchi Gye Panyam Pamepaya Gane Kandu Pelwasho May the light of enlightenment arise and awaken where it has not yet been arisen and where it has already arisen may it be fanned into flame into blaze and illumine the entire world for the boundless benefit of one and all homage to the natural great perfection the innate radiance homage to the buddhiness within don't overlook it peace and well-being to one and all sarva mangalam Thank you, LSD. The author of many programs with Sounds True, including two DVDs, one on natural meditation and one on Tibetan yoga, an audio program on Tibetan dream yoga, a book CD called Natural Radiance, which includes many of the pith instructions we discussed, Awakening to Your Great Perfection, and a recent audio program called Buddha Is As Buddha Does, on the bodhisattva ideal. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey.